Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Good to be together, amen? I, like Pastor Marshall, want to celebrate that we're not down in Ocean City right now, but we're here in the house of the Lord, and uh, it's good to be together, particularly good to be together this holiday weekend. Thank you for being here to worship together, to honor our Father and to be in His house. Amen? We're enjoying this series in Nehemiah, and it is my uh, lot to share with you from the next chapter this morning. But first, I want to tell you about a gentleman about whom I read this week. I was reading an account this week about a man who was looking forward to Saturday coming. He was working very hard all week long, and he couldn't wait until Saturday got here because he just he wanted to sleep in a little bit, wanted to have a great breakfast. He had his own list of things he wanted to do around the house, and then he had his honeydew list of things that he was invited to do, and he just looked forward to not having to go to work. Friday comes, and then Saturday rolls around, and it's this husband and father's dream. He sleeps in a little bit later, and then he gets up, and he's just kind of moving around the house doing little odds and ends, and he hears this noise in the backyard. At first, it caught him off guard a little bit, but then he realized that he remembered that his young daughter said she wanted to invite some friends over for some fun on Saturday. So he realized it was the kids in the backyard playing, and he didn't think much of it. Well, time goes by, 10, 15, 20 minutes go by, and the noise is getting louder, and he's still not concerned because it's kids playing, and what would you expect? A little while longer goes, and all of a sudden, there's a tone to the noise that was a bit disturbing to him. It sounded like there was some conflict going on. So he still didn't feel he needed to react too quickly, but a few more minutes go by and the volume increases and now it's sounding more and more tense. There's an acceleration of what seems to be tension in their voices. And he's saying, whatever this is, I've got to go stop it. Dad rushes out the door and he heads into the backyard and when he gets out there he sees several kids huddled together and some of them very animated, their hands are going and looks like they're yelling back and forth at each other. There are some who are just, their arms are folded and you can see on their faces that they're not particularly happy. One or two over in a corner by themselves and they're rather detached and now he's concerned. His daughter is right in the middle of all of this stuff. So as a concerned father, listening to what was going on, he rushes up to his daughter and says, what's going on here? He said, I've got to stop this. I don't know what you're doing, but I've got to stop it. And the the daughter gets this perplexed look on her face, and she says, what's wrong, Daddy? We're just playing church. (laughs) In a few moments, we're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. The title of the message this morning is The Calamity of conflict. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, how grateful you are to come together this morning, God, in your name. Lord, we have laughed together. We have sung together. We have given it and received. Father, we have celebrated. Many of us celebrated in the first service, and Lord, your presence was glorious. But God, we don't take for granted, oh God, that you would Bless again. So we ask you, God, continue to pour out your favor upon us in these moments. Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say. Give us an ability, O God, to hear your voice and then, God, the determination, Lord, to do whatever you call upon us to do. God, this morning we love you. And Father, we stand in authority in the name of Jesus Christ against every work of the adversary, against every distraction that would hinder the ministry of your word today. We have gathered this morning, God, to hear from heaven. So God, would you open the book this morning and share with us? And in so doing, God, teach us, take us one more step in our journey in the kingdom of Almighty God. And Father, I pray that as you do that, and we trust that you will, that God, you'll find of us hearts that are discontent with just being hearers of the word, But God, determined to be doers of the word of Almighty God. So God, we commend the word to you this morning. We commend ourselves to you. Father, help us to rightly divide the word of truth. And then, Lord, when we leave this place, may we not only say that it's been good to be in the house of God, may we recognize together we're on assignment by the Sovereign One. And Father, may our conduct reflect our hearing your word. And may you find us obedient to you, God, in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
no one can question when we look at Nehemiah chapter 4 that it was a season of celebration for this band of Jews who had left captivity and now come into Jerusalem. And their central mission in mind was to build the wall one brick at a time, to reconstruct the wall and to reestablish what was for them home, the city of David. But I would tell you that although we mentioned that this was a season of celebration, certainly by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, I will share with you this morning that it did not begin that way. According to the beginning of chapter 4, Sanballat's the Horonite who had postured himself against the Jews. The Bible tells us that he lost it when he realized that construction had begun. And true to form, in all of Sanballat's rage, he opted not to keep his poisonous, hateful words to himself. But he decided he wanted to share them with his associates and with the armies of Samaria. Then in the next few verses, we see Tobiah. I call Tobiah his uh, partner in crime. Tobiah joined in with the misery and the mockery that was coming against the nation of Israel. And according to verse 3, Tobiah said this, What they are building, this wall, if even a fox climbs upon it, he will break down what they have built with stone. He's standing in the background ridiculing, put yourself in their place. Day after day and, and going into the weeks, you're standing out there in the heat of that desert sun. And you're constructing a wall. Your heart is filled with love and desire as you're rebuilding the walls of this sacred city. As you're putting back together that place that your own people have always called home. And not only are there the sounds, the rhythmic sounds of construction that's going on, but in the background, day and night, you're hearing the echoes of the mockery of people like Sam Ballot and Tobiah. And somewhere piercing through all that they were saying, you hear this guy Tobiah say, look at that wall. They built that wall out of rubble. That wall's not going to last. If a little fox runs on the wall, the wall's going to crumble, and we'll have one more thing to mock them about. Imagine what it was like. One of the things I appreciate as we look at chapter 5 is that the saints were undaunted. St. Ballad and his friends felt that there was strength in numbers, so the Word of God tells us that they got together, they plotted together to do a couple things. They determined they were going to assemble they determined they were going to fight against Jerusalem, and they determined they were going to stir up trouble. So the volume on this conflict is turning up more and more with every passing day. However, the saints of God were undaunted. I did not say they were unaware, but they were undaunted. They were not unaware at all of their enemy's tactics or his attacks. They simply were unwilling to quit. They knew very well what the enemy was doing. The enemy made sure that his volume was loud enough. That they would all hear what he was doing and, and understand what he was doing. But something in the heart of the people of God, as they constructed that wall one brick at a time, one person next to another, day and night, they decided we will not quit. Glory to God. There are so many lessons that we can learn from the nation of Israel here in this chapter, but I only have a chance to give you a few of them this morning. They were on a mission. They were on a trajectory. They were on a pathway. They were in a line of development that was set up by God himself. And nothing in the heart of these Jews wanted to stop the work that God had called them to. Let me remind you of a few things that they did. First of all, the scripture makes it clear in verse 4 of chapter 4 that they interceded. Scripture says that Nehemiah led this great company of people with these words. He said, hear us, O our God. There are times when as the people of God, something will come our way, especially if it's something challenging. And if you're like me, you, you run very quickly to find out what is the plan going to be? How do I figure this out? What steps do I need to take? But many, many times it's not first things first in terms of the steps you and I should devise, the plans you and I should put in place. Many times we need to follow the injunction and the pattern of Nehemiah and the nation of Israel. The Bible says when conflict came, the first thing they did was hit their knees, went on their faces before God, and they said, oh God, hear us today. Glory to God. If we would just learn. That prayer is not the also-ran. Prayer is not a last resort. But prayer should be one of our first lines of defense. When something comes, especially when the enemy comes against us, turn our hearts toward God. The old song said, have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about our troubles. He will hear your faintest cry. He'll answer by and by. 
you hear a little prayer wheel turning and you know a little fire is burning. So have a little talk with Jesus. Makes it right. Glory to God. They interceded. Secondly, the Bible says they got busy. They got busy. I love prayer. I love prayer meetings. But every now and then I run into a believer who seems to feel that all we need to do is pray. Now this, um, this is respectful. I'm not saying don't pray or we don't need to. Five days in a row of prayer. And the sixth day is followed by another. Let me tell you what I'm saying this morning. We must pray. But then when we have stopped praying, we get up and do what God told us in prayer to do. There is prayer. There is intercession on one side. Then there is the action. God is known for in the closet of prayer to give his people instructions. And if we don't obey the instructions God gives in prayer, we only have completed half of the equation. One of the things we see the nation of Israel did. It was after they interceded, they got busy, but they got busy. I like not only that they got busy, but the manner in which they attacked what God had before them. They got busy with a profound sense of personal ownership. They weren't haphazard. They weren't random. They weren't lazy and listless when it came to building the work of God, building the wall. The Bible says this, and I love this verse. It's in verse 6. It says, so we built the walls. I like the King James translation here. The NIV says, so we built the wall for the people worked with all their hearts. King James puts it this way. So we built the wall, or so built we the wall, because the people had a mind to work. When it came to the work of God, there was ownership. They, wait a minute, Jack, that's my brick. Let me put that one in place. And let me put the next one in place because I helped build that particular wall. There was something in their heart that wanted to be actively involved in what God was doing. Folks, they interceded, and then they got busy. Third thing they did is they never lost sight of their enemy or his threats. Every now and then, I think we ignore the fact that we have an enemy. Once in a while, we slip into one of two traps. Either we become preoccupied with the devil, or we pretend he's not there. Neither one is healthy, right, or true. Verse 9 says this. They posted a guard day and night. To meet this threat, they realize that we cannot lose our, our, our place, we cannot drop our guard, we cannot lose our defenses because just in that moment that we do or that he thinks we does, the enemy is going to try to pounce and destroy the people of God. So the Bible says day and night around the clock, they maintain their guard, they maintain their defenses, and even when they were working, they worked with a weapon in one hand and a trowel in the other. They never, ever forgot the threats of their enemy. Folks, they were not the only ones. Paul understood something. The apostle Paul understood something about this. He said to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he said, we are not ignorant or unaware of Satan's devices or schemes. There is an adversary, the Bible says, who roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You and I should never be preoccupied with the devil. We never need to be afraid of him, but don't forget that he's hanging out there. Because in those moments that we let our guard down, all of a sudden he slips in and tries to take captive the people of God. Let me illustrate it as such. Luke chapter 4, I believe it's verse 13. The scripture says that Jesus Christ had been in that wilderness fasting for some 40 days. And during that time, the enemy tempted him, tried to tempt him over and over and over again. The Bible says that Jesus went into that moment of temptation, that season of temptation, full of the Holy Spirit. Matthew says that. Luke says that when he came out of it, he was still full of the Holy Spirit. But I believe it's Luke 4.13 says this. It says that after three failed attempts of causing the Son of God to fall, the Bible says in the NIV translation that the enemy left him until an opportune time. He stepped back. I'll catch him. I'll catch him off guard. Well, Nehemiah understood the tactics of the enemy, and he said, you're not going to catch us off guard. Because day and night we have our guard up. We're mindful of the work of the adversary, and so must we be today. Number four, they refused to abandon their faith in God. In verse 14, the scripture says, don't be afraid of them. Nehemiah was speaking. He said, don't be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Remember God and fight. It reminds me of a conversation between Jesus and Simon Peter. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith fail not. I'll tell you why that was such a profound prayer. Because if our faith stays intact, there is nothing God cannot walk us through in victory. Glory to God. I'll say amen because that's true. I pray that your faith fail not. When these Israelites were standing in Jerusalem, hearing the mockery behind them and building the wall, something that they did that is exemplary down through the ages is that they refused to abandon their faith in the God who would fight for them. Glory to God. As they drew near the end of chapter 5, they were energized, not only by the progress of the construction of the wall, but they were energized by the powerful words of their commander-in-chief. In verse 20, Nehemiah said to the people of Israel very simply, he said, our God will fight for us. Praise God. Our God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, will fight for us. Amen? If you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. I just want to read the first eight verses, then I want to tell you a few things about it. Nehemiah 5, beginning at verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and their charges, and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my, in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are exacting usury. You're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now we are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. There is a mild debate regarding the textual placement of Nehemiah chapter 5. There are some who believe that this chapter is misplaced. And they believe it because nowhere herein do you find any mention of the building of the wall. So they say since there is no mention of the building of the wall in chapter 5, where there is in chapter 4 and chapter 6, then this chapter must be misplaced. On the other side of the ledger, there are those who believe that this chapter is perfectly and strategically placed. And they believe that because nowhere in this chapter is there a mention of the building of the wall. The very same reason why some think it's misplaced is the reasons why other things it is per think is perfectly and strategically placed there. Can they both be right? Of course not. I tend to lead on the side of the second camp. Although it seems somewhat disjointed to have this chapter in here that says nothing about building the wall when you've got the victory in chapter 5 and the continuation in chapter 4 and the continuation in chapter 6, I submit to you today that it is perfectly placed there by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. It's like 1 Corinthians 13. What does it, what does it belong between 14 and 12? It's perfectly sandwiched in between. And so is this passage perfectly sandwiched in between them. While these two, these two sides, these theological sides, might have a minor, and it is a minor debate over this. I'll tell you one of the things they've all agreed to identifying the central and troubling issues that are contained herein. Something happened. We get to chapter 5, and all of a sudden, the great celebration we have seen in chapter 4 seems to come to a screeching halt. Something happened in chapter 5 that stopped the work of God dead in its tracks. Whatever this was that happened, 
stopped the work of God, albeit temporarily. Nonetheless, it stopped the work of God. You see, nowhere in chapter 5 do we hear an account or see a single line of one brick being placed upon the other. And somehow, somewhere in the text itself, it suggests that at least momentarily, at least for a brief season, the construction project must have stopped because there was something that disrupted what God's people were doing. It appears that everything had come to a screeching halt. But I asked myself the question, what could have happened? I really did. What could have happened? Who would be responsible? Who was at fault for the cessation of the work of God? Even though it was temporary, who was responsible for that? What person or power or thing bore enough influence to hinder the work of Almighty God? I'll tell you, according to the word of God, it was not the Horonites, the people of Sanballat. It was not the Ammonites, the people of Tobiah. It was not the Arabs. It was not the, um, what is their name? It was one of the other ites, the, the Ashdodites. It was not the Ashdodites. It was not the army of Samaria. It was not the associates of Sanballat and Tobiah. And may I suggest to you this morning that all the ites in the region did not have enough power put together to stop the work of God. So what was it according to Nehemiah's writing that caused the work of God to all of a sudden freeze in its tracks to stop just momentarily? It's important for them to know it then, and it's important for us as we walk through the book of Nehemiah to understand it today. As I began to search the scriptures, and I'll tell you what, when I first began working on this, when Pastor Chris asked me to address chapter 5, I read through it right away, and I thought that I would land on the last verse, verse 19, and that would be the principal text for what we're sharing this morning. But when I went back to study it again, I got stuck on verse 1. And I realized that the key or the the hinge to all that we need to understand here in chapter 5 begins with what we see in verse 1. You see, the thing that hindered the work of God, the thing that froze it in its tracks momentarily was the people of God. The work of God, the building of the wall, were threatened internally. And may I tell you that throughout the ages, history has proven that the greatest destruction that can ever come to the company of the people of God is not from without. The greatest destruction, if you don't believe it, read 1 John chapter 2. The greatest destruction that is ever perpetrated against the body of believers, Old Testament, New Testament, and today, always comes, always exercises its greatest success when it finds a way, finds its way to get within the company of the people of God. The things that most effectively halted progress in the work of God. Here in chapter 5, read it. I'm not making this up. It was this disunity. The strife, the mistreatment, the selfishness, the division, and the unresolved conflict among those who corporately and collectively called him Lord. Those who stood side by side with voices elevated and calling Jehovah Lord, it was from within this gathering of people that the effective work came that halted the work of Almighty God. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1 says this. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. May I tell you that the offense was great. And the offense was not to the nations around them. The offense in this chapter was brother to brother. We don't have time to go into a long explanation of all the offenses. Let me just list for you a couple of things they had done. It was Jews enslaving Jews. They were exploiting one another. They were robbing each other. They were humiliating their brothers and their sisters to the extent that some had to sell off their property in order to pay the taxes, to the extent that some had to enslave their children to pay off their debts. And this was not the pagans doing this. This was brother against brother. The sin and the grief and the offense was great. But when the offense is great, brother to brother, When the offense is great within the company of believers, so must the reconciliation, so must the resolution be. It must be great if we are to see the work of God continue, if we are to see the work of God prosper, and if we are to see the work of God become an indestructible witness to the world around us. The enemy is always going to try to stop the people of God from doing his work. 
But the Bible still says, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. Glory to God. The word still says, it's my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Glory to God. So today we want to shut a couple gates. Amen. It was true. This principle, this idea, this act, activity of the challenges coming from within, it was true in that day. And all too often, my friends, it's true in ours. Today's message is not, it is not a study in calamity or conflict. I'm not here to glorify those things. Rather, it is to address what we need to do when calamity and conflict rear their ugly head among the people of God. And we all know that it happens. So what do we do? What do we do when those things take place? Since you asked, let me share a couple things with you this morning. The little girl playing in the backyard knew that calamity visits the household of God. The question is this morning, what did Nehemiah do about it? And what must we? Let me tell you four things very, very quickly, and I am mindful of your time. Number one, I want to talk to you about the reality of conflict. The reality of conflict. I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning itemizing every brother-to-brother offense that took place among the nation of Israel. We don't have that much time. And the reality is that the circumstances of their lives are quite different than ours in the 21st century, our 21st century conditions. The nature and the details of their conflict might not be the same as the nature and the details of anyone else's conflict anywhere else in any other era. And that's okay. We make very plain what I mean by that. None of us this morning are somewhere in a desert having our children enslaved because we're trying simply to survive. That is not our lot. We're sitting in an air-conditioned sanctuary in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. So the circumstances are different, and that's okay. The nature of the conflicts in any era among any people might be different, and that's okay. And we don't need to take a lot of time to explore all the nuances of their challenges because that really is not the issue this morning. The reality is, although the nature and details are different, the devastating results of conflicts, unresolved conflict, are often similar no matter what time, no matter what era, no matter what group of people. So this morning we want to look at what do we do in terms of resolution. We understand that conflict comes. Anybody who's more than 15 years old will tell you conflict is a part of life. But does it have to control us? Does it have to dominate our days? Does it have to be this unleashed, gruesome power that somehow is given the right and the authority to interrupt the work of God? I would say no to all of the above. That's one thing to say it. It's another thing to see how this works according to the word of God. Names, places, circumstances may change. But conflict among believers, conflict among believers is toxic. Conflict among believers is corrupting and it's a corrosive agent, never seeking any good for the people of God, always seeking to discourage, to distract, to divide, and to destroy God's people and God's work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, and I want to share with you a couple of verses of Scripture that address this issue. Because we need to understand it. Folks, please hear my heart this morning, and more than that, please hear the heart of God. I got so excited over this passage of Scripture. At first I thought, God, am I the one you really want to share this? But then I got excited. I thought, God, is true. And God, you simply served the wake-up call to the nation of Israel. You know how the writer of Hebrews said we're surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses? This is somewhere in the cloud. We talk about the cloud. This is somewhere in the cloud. That cloud of witnesses as a testimony to us of what can happen if the people of God let their guard down. But what can happen also when we put it back up and we walk in victory, because if I can cheat a little bit, I'll tell you, in chapter 6, they started building the wall one more time. Glory to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul said this. He said, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels and schisms among you. 
One of the first things that Paul had to address in this particular letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church had to do with factions and schisms, strife and conflict among the believers. Galatians chapter 5 verse 15, Paul again. He said, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. Watch out or you will be destroyed by one another. Folks, that's destructive behavior. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He said, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Folks, when we say that, when we say, oh, I just love God, I swoon in his presence. I don't have a whole lot of use for his kids, but I just love God. That's hypocritical. It's not Bradley saying that. It's in the book. Hear the words of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 25, right around verse 40. Jesus said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was in prison and you visited me. Then he talks to another group. He says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was naked and you gave me nothing to wear. I was in prison and you did not visit me. Both groups of people said to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When were you in prison we came to visit? And Jesus said the same thing to both camps. He said, for as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Do you remember when Saul got saved? Saul had been persecuting the church. And on the day of his conversion on the road to Damascus, when Jesus stopped him in his tracks, Jesus did not say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes personally, God takes personally how you and I treat one another because how we treat one another is how we're treating him. I'll say amen because it's true. That's the reality of conflict. Secondly, let me tell you very quickly about the reaction to conflict. And I looked directly at Nehemiah. I was intrigued by the way he responded to the conflict of the hour. Nehemiah modeled for us a timeless prescription for addressing conflict. First of all, it started with contemplation. If you look at chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says that Nehemiah got angry. Now, I've heard people say that, well, Christians can't get angry. Christians don't get angry. We all know that's not true. <laughs> the Christians should never get angry. That's not true either. Now, before I say anything else, I just want to ask you, please don't leave here. No brawling in the parking lot because Pastor Ron said it's okay to get angry. That's, that's not the deal. What the Word of God says is be angry because anger is a part of the emotional package that was part of us just in creation. It's one of the emotions that we have. What the scripture says is be angry and don't sin. We will find occasions when we get angry, but that is not a license or a liberty to sin. When you get angry, control it. God will help us get that thing under control. Nehemiah got ticked, the Bible says. When I heard these things, and it indicates that Nehemiah did not know the full story ahead of time, he said, but when I heard these things, I was very angry. The man of God was ticked off that day. But part of the contemplation was not just that he got angry. Nehemiah very quickly got quiet. The Bible says he pondered. He pondered. And I wondered to myself, what did he get quiet about or what did he do? May I submit to you what I think took place? Nehemiah got quiet with the details. We know that he did that because later on when he addressed it, he was very specific in what he had to say. You ever seen somebody who gets angry? They don't even necessarily know what they're angry about, and they certainly know the details. They just got to go off. I'll tell you something I enjoy, and maybe this is a little flesh, so this might be a, 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 a confession. But when somebody just kind of goes off, they just, I mean, you know, their blood's purified right in front of you. And they can calmly say, yeah, but blah, blah, blah. And they're as wrong as two left shoes. Now, I got to tell you, something inside of me thinks, oh, angry for nothing. Ignorant anger 
just flies off the handle. No justification. It's not grounded in anything. May I tell you that that was not the occasion with Nehemiah. Nehemiah got along with the details because he wanted to know, I'm really upset. But about what? And by the time Nehemiah came away from that moment, he had a detailed list of the infractions that took place brother to brother. He got quiet with himself. Every now and then, folks, it's great to be around people, but every now and then you need to steal away all by yourself. We need quiet time just to get alone and contemplate, just to get alone with our own thoughts, just to get alone and figure ourselves out. But somewhere in that aloneness, Nehemiah also got quiet with God. We know that because of the godly directives that came from that time by himself. So by the time he stepped out of whatever that prayer closet was, he had heard something from Almighty God. And he knew the direction to take for himself and the direction in which he must lead the people. It started with contemplation. His reaction to conflicts then moved to confrontation. Confrontation is not always a bad thing if you do it in a godly way. So don't leave here again telling off that ultra slow cashier at the store. Do you know how long I've waited in your line? I'm a child of God. (laughs) Yeah, they're about to get saved. (laughs) That's not the kind of confrontation the scripture endorses. Confrontation, let me tell you how Nehemiah did it. And then we're looking at verses seven and eight. Three things, the Bible says that then he accused the nobles and the officials. He didn't have time to go talking behind their backs or you know, going all over the place. He went directly to those that he knew were the ones who did it. He said, we need to have a talk. He went to the nobles and the officials and he said, this is what you have done. I know it, I've got the facts, here's the proof, and I'm bringing it to you. That's biblical confrontation. If your brother sins against you, go to him. That's what the word of God says. Here, was, here were those who sinned against the people of God. And here came the prophet of God. He went directly to them. He said, I'm accusing you of what you have done because you've done it. Secondly, the Bible says that he said, so I called together a large meeting. I love the last part of that sentence. He said, I called together a large meeting to deal with them. It's time to talk. It's time to deal with this thing. No, it's not. Well, I'll I'll take care. We're calling together a meeting. This one demanded corporate interest. He called a meeting to deal with them, and it was appropriate on this occasion. But the third thing I find very interesting in verse 8, the Bible says they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Truth prevailed. Righteousness prevailed on this particular occasion. The reaction to conflict was that it started with contemplation and moved to confrontation. It ended with a command. Verse 12. Then I summoned the priests, made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. There was some accountability that took place. The infraction was large. The correction needed to be complete. And Paul said, Paul, Nehemiah said, I'm sending the priests to make sure you take this oath. So you're not just telling me today you're going to make it right. You will make this right because there's too much at stake. The wall has stopped being built. The third thing, the remedy for conflict, and this will be very brief. I love the fact that when Scripture points out a challenge to us or something we should do, it always gives us the answer. I would be remiss this morning if I just told you conflict exists among God's people. I'm not saying always, and you know that. But it comes. Hopefully it goes. It can be in the people of God in a corporate setting like this. It can creep into our homes, into our relationships, into our friendships. When it comes, what do we do? I would tell you this morning there are remedies if we take seriously the desire for reconciliation or restoration. It takes a couple things. If we really want to remedy the conflict, it takes, and this is not an exhaustive list, but this is what I have time to tell you this morning. It takes introspection over avoidance. Avoiding a conflict has never, ever, ever made it work. If we pretend that the conflict is not there, or pretend it will take care of itself, I have never seen it. If you have, see me after church. 
I've never seen it get better. I've never seen it get resolved, leaving it to its own devices. Normally, it leaves room for the imagination, and the next thing you know, a pebble is now a boulder. We cannot pretend. We cannot avoid those things, nor do we run in like a bull in a china shop. We simply need to resolve them because they don't just take care of themselves. When I find that I'm the guilty one in terms of the conflict, what the scripture invites us to do is confess our sin, especially if it has your name on it. If you know you're the one who has done whatever, then don't pass the buck. Own it. That brings me to the second remedy. Repentance over blame. Own only what is yours, but do own it. If you know that somehow you have been part of the bricks coming off the wall. Your actions have helped stop the work of God, small time or big. Own it. Own it. And do it quickly. But don't find yourself guilty of what I call spiritual hypochondria. That if there's a sin somewhere in the vicinity, I must have done that too. So your cousin tells you, you know, I had, I had these, these bad thoughts. You know, I, I think I did too. I don't remember they were, but I think they did too. And, you know, well, well I've got this, this tendency to steal. You know, I haven't taken it, but I really want to. And, and I th- you know what I'm saying? Don't own that which is not yours. If you're not guilty, then, then don't do it. And if you're not involved in the schism, don't get upset because I'm talking about it this morning. But if it's yours, own it. Any day, any time, any moment, and I say this starting with myself, to all of us, if we really want a remedy when conflict comes, we must not avoid it. We must not place the blame. Well, surely it's the woman that thou gavest me. (laughs) Adam tried that, and it's never worked. It's easy to blame. It's a hard thing to look in the mirror and say, God, I'm the one who did this. But when that's the case, folks, we repent. The third thing is humility must be over pride. It must win out over pride. When I learn to repent instead of giving blame, my desire, my ambition must be to make it right with God. When I place humility over pride, my ambition must be to make it right with the person I have wronged. It never works, folks. We're involved in a conflict and we say, God, I, I spent all this time praying. I made it right with God. God, please help me never to see that person again because, but God, I made it right with you. My heart is at peace. And Lord, it can remain at peace if they sit on this side of the church and I sit on that one. But you think I make this up? <laughs> Been in ministry over 40 years, folks. We could be here all day. <laughs> all day. It's not enough just to make it right with God. Make it right wherever you have caused any hurt. And then once you've made it right, cut it out. Change the behavior. Jesus spoke to an adulterous woman, spared her life, but told her, go and stop doing what you're doing. There was a man who could not get into the water in John chapter 5, and Jesus said, go and cut it out. Let something worse come upon you. We're not talking about a momentary course correction or reprieve. We're talking about a change. And when I've made it right, I change the behavior. That's a remedy toward conflict. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as I tell you one last thing. We talk about the reality of conflict. Nehemiah's reaction to conflict, the remedy for conflict. And the last thing is the responsibility and results of resolved conflict. The responsibility and results of resolved conflict. And they're very, very simple. There is great responsibility when it comes to resolving conflict. But may I tell you simply that the responsibility is yours and mine. It is yours and mine. It belongs to no one else. I don't have to look around the room and say, but I sure hope they heard this. When I was a little boy, we went to my grandfather's funeral, I was six. Drove to a little town in Georgia. I would tell you the name, but you haven't heard of it. Little town in Georgia, and as we were in my grandparents' house, I remember they had this, this rickety little upright piano, and some of the keys even worked. The family's in the living room, and they're 
plunking around this piano, and they taught us a song that I had never heard before, but I've never forgotten, and I was six years old. And the song simply says, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my mother or my father or my sister or my brother, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. When we talk about the responsibilities of conflict resolution, we want to first look to ourselves. Well, Pastor, I'm not the one who did it, and we well, may well not be. But doesn't the Word of God say, if your brother has ought against you, go and make it right. Leave your gift before God. Go and make it right. And then go back and give your gift to God. Well, I'm not the one who did it, and I'm not the one who wrote it. Go and make it right. Take personal responsibility. And even if we have not been the one to do it, doesn't the scripture say, blessed are the peacemakers? Be a peacemaker. Allow the anointing of God to help you be, to be one who is a rebuilder of the breach, a restorer of broken things. Allow God to use you in that regard. If we're going to see conflicts resolved, wherever they might happen to be, somebody's got to be big enough to take responsibility. And if each one of us runs like a child in school saying, ooh, me, me, me. If each one of us does that, can you imagine how quickly conflict will end? Folks, I'm telling you, if we ever do that, revival will break out over the weekend. But that's where the responsibility lies. What is the result? What is the result of conflict resolution, biblical conflict resolution? The result is that the wall is completed and the bricks go back on the wall. My prayer for myself is, God, may I never be a person who is part of the demolition crew. I'm responsible for the bricks coming off the wall and the work of God stopping. But God, may I be one of those who has a mind to work, who has a mind to serve you in ways that honor you, who has a mind to be part of the construction, the building of broken walls and the restorer of those things that had once been destroyed. The closing words of Nehemiah in chapter 5 were this. He said, remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. Now they were ready to rebuild the wall. My prayer for this place, my prayer for Evangel Church, and all that comprises Evangel Church, every household, every family, every relationship, every friendship, for us corporately when we come together, for every ministry that we uh, are involved in, for every ministry that we create, my prayer for us is that we will be a conflict-free zone. Got a little work to do. But my prayer is that we will become, and we will be in the presence of God, a conflict-free zone. To that end, I invite all of us today to join me in prayer. If you have been wounded by conflict, if you are aware of conflict, and folks, it doesn't even have to be here. Last service, we were praying with various people, and some of the conflicts in life had nothing to do with anything under this roof. If you find yourself aware of conflict, or if you happen to be the cause of conflict, or if you just choose to stand against conflict, I invite you to pick up a brick and start rebuilding the wall. Don't sit by and do nothing. At the very least, we can pray. I remind you, lastly, of the words of Paul you read earlier. From the house of Chloe, they had served notice on the apostle that among the believers there in Corinth, there were divisions and schisms over loyalties to one another. And they were a harm and they were injurious to the church. May that never be said of us. And if it can be today, by tomorrow, may it never be said again. Amen? I want to invite us to pray. And this is what I'm going to ask us to do. In just a moment, uh, I will stop speaking. I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in worship. And I'm going to ask, if you would, unless you really have to go, if all of us, if you can even stay just five minutes and just pray. Just pray. The nature of these types of things affect all of us. Nothing in Nehemiah chapter 5 suggests to us that all of the Jews 
were mistreating their brothers. But for the minority of those who were doing it, the impact of it affected everybody. And I just want us today as believers, as members of this family, to take a stand. God, we want to be a conflict-free zone, a conflict-free family of God. Now, it might be a little surgical if we really are bold enough to say that to God because he might look at us. But folks, if we know there are challenges, what is it going to take for us to do something about it? Now is the time. Today is the day. I'm going to ask you to join me. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I want to pray. The worship team is going to lead us. And then these altars are open. We have some altar workers. I'm going to invite them to come in case somebody wants someone to pray with you. If you want to pray at the altar on your own, you want to stay in, in your seat, you want to walk around the room, this is between you and God. But I'm just asking you to stay for a while if you can because together we can defeat any work of the enemy seeking to tear down the wall. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning in your house and we're so grateful, God, that, Lord, you have always been a builder of the walls. You've motivated your people to do the same. And Father, this morning we gather around your word and we thank you for the writings of Nehemiah. We thank you, God. You could easily have just erased chapter 5 because, Lord, we don't want to talk about the challenging stuff. Let's get back to the good stuff. But God, it's those challenging things often that cause us to be iron that sharpens iron. This morning, God, we thank you that when conflict visits us, we are not helpless and we are not hopeless as your children. Whether it's personal, intrinsic conflict, familial, whether it's corporate in the fellowship, whatever it is, God, you have answers and you have freedom. So today, Father, we position ourselves before your throne, asking for your help and for your grace, that we might be a church continually putting bricks on top of one another, that we might be a church with an undaunted testimony to the world around us that God is real. Bless, I pray now, God. And then, Lord, as people need to leave, bless us as we go our varied ways. Help us, O oh God, to carry the mantle of your word and your grace. And God, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship team leads us, find a place to pray. And then when you feel released to go, then go knowing that God loves you. And so do we.